2: Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friend's still laugh at me to this day.
3: Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be.
2: This week's episode is brought to you by NPR One. From smartphones to smart speakers, NPR One's customizable sponsorship opportunities let your brand's message be heard everywhere. And NPR's audience holds a more positive opinion of brands that sponsor NPR One. Learn more about connecting your brand with NPR One listeners at NPR.org slash sponsorship.
1: You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture. It's in the end. Everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, always great to have you on the show.
0: Thank you so much. Good to be here.
1: We've also got back Lauren Johnson, a senior tech editor at Adweek. we got a lot of tech stuff to talk about this week, so I'm super excited to have you, Lauren. Welcome back. Thanks. And also back, Sammy Main, a reporter covering digital media for Adweek. Sammy, welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, everybody.
1: All right. we got a lot of stuff to talk about. We've got heavy stuff like diversity in the tech world, and we've got super light stuff like whether or not Dunkin' Donuts needs to have donuts in its name. We're really going to run the gamut, and we're going to talk about our ongoing Next Tech series that looks at the future of technology and marketing, and we have a lot to talk about there. Uh, We're going to really be deciphering the jargon and the trends and kind of separating the fads from the reality. It's going to be a great discussion, and I'm really glad. We're also going to have another uh, tech star from Adweek kind of rotate in and join us once we move into that. But, uh, But first, the news. So Google has fired a developer who wrote an anti-diversity memo, basically a 10 or 11 page screed about how diversity or Google's focus on diversity or their approach to it have kind of, uh, I I guess to put it kindly, he's saying that um, there's been too much focus on diversity and not enough on talent. Uh, It's, you know, I guess on the one hand... Uh, it's, it's kind of a commonplace sentiment, this idea that, uh, you know, diversity hurts the, the oceans of white males out there just waiting for a chance to, to work on this stuff. Uh, but, you know, it was circulated pretty heavily within Google. It made the rounds outside of Google, took the company several days to respond officially. And then it kind of got the attention from their chief diversity officer and, of course, from their CEO, who uh, made the decision to fire the employee uh, and, uh, ba- you know, the, the part of the argument, I think there is a way to write this memo that doesn't get you fired, uh, but the part of it that obviously was the most divisive was uh, that the writer seemed to think there are these biological factors that separate women from men and make men better coders, and Google needed to recognize that. Uh, it, to me, was really reminiscent of when Sachi & Saatchi, the ad agency, uh, their chairman had to resign after making some comments about how women lack vertical ambition was his phrase for it. Uh, and that's why there weren't more women in leadership. And uh, so, so this is certainly kind of an argument that we've seen, usually coming from white males in these leadership positions or in these, you know, coveted tech positions. And the uh, CEO, Sundar Pichai, uh, said, to suggest a group of our colleagues have traits that make them less biologically suited to that work is offensive and not Okay. And he actually, uh, the CEO, ended his family vacation early to come back from overseas and basically deal with all this. Uh, and, you know, of course, like all things, it turned very political very quickly. And we've seen kind of the people on the far right really taking, uh, you know, taking up this employees or ex-employees' position. WikiLeaks has offered a job to the fire developer, and Julian Assange said uh, censorship is for losers, and the, you know, sounding very Trumpian in his tweets there. Lauren, I'm curious... To, to, you can just kind of start us off. These opinions of, you know, the white male, you know, gaps or that whatever, they, these perceived lack of opportunity for white males, these opinions are a dime a dozen out there in the tech community, especially anonymous ones. Why do you think this one ended up resonating so much or, or sparking so much controversy?
4: Well, besides the – it became blatantly clear as soon as you start to read the memo that this guy has no idea what he's talking about – Um, I think it is the latest example of how, yeah, there is this kind of undercurrent, pervasive uh, sexism in the tech industry and diversity really broadly more than just sexism. Uh, And when it comes from a big company like Google that this kind of thing makes the rounds internally before it's even really picked up for – by the press and then Google takes its time getting back to you. It just it just kind of snowballs into this much bigger issue that then has you thinking, oh God, if this if is an issue at Google, what's happening at Apple? What's happening at Twitter? What's happening at Facebook? It just kind of brings up all these other questions of what's going on. Sammy, do you
1: feel it it feels like this went far beyond the the usual tech circles of social media? You know, this it wasn't just like this was being debated in tech crunch type sites. Uh, did you see this kind of spilling out across all your different, you know, you cover a much wider breadth of, of areas and have a much wider network than just tech folks. Did it seem to be kind of resonating well beyond that, that group
2: It did seem so. Actually, one of my friends who until recently was an editor for Google Books, kind of an often underthought of part of the whole company. Um, She recently left her job there and then this came out like the week or like the weekend of her last week there. And she was like, what? Now that I'm gone, we're talking about stuff like this? So I I feel like What was behind it were his wild opinions about biology and science, and it was just so long. Nothing good ever comes from what you call a screed. Like If the term screed is used, (laughs) be worried. (laughs) Otherwise, it's, you know, manifesto also isn't a good term. So I feel like really... The, the power of social media when stuff like this comes out, we can use it to kind of squash the bug that that caused such a problem or was at least the bug talking about the problem. And so it's kind of nice when people steamroll for a good reason. Um, so to that end, I think that's why I kind of pick up steam. I think people on social media are always kind of looking for a cause to put themselves behind. And this was just kind of one of those things that was easy to quote and easy to make fun of and easy to kind of get the word out there.
1: Yeah, I feel, I feel like it's the, the borderline... You know, the pseudoscience that almost kind of smacks of, of eugenics, you know, mm-hmm. in the sense of like, they are they're, they're just these biological differences. And I mean, sure, I mean, there there are differences between men and women. No one's going to argue on that. But yes. when you start saying things Ambition like...
2: Ambition is not one of them, though.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the ability to code. Yeah. <laughs> you know? How
2: about like the ability
4: to handle, what was it, women are far more likely to be extroverts oh, than introverts, sure. because that's a real thing. That's a <laughs> biologically proven
2: fact. Yep. Can't shut him up, those women. Yeah, not
0: to mention how, how little recognition on this guy's part of, of how much people's abilities can be learned and not biological. I mean, this mm-hmm. the certainty with which this guy was going on and on, I mean, that was red flag number one, and you could you could sense that from the very beginning. Not that I made it to the very end of this memo. It was so long. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, it was very bizarre. The uh, it, it felt very Silicon Valley in that sense, though, like the certainty and the... And the sort of telling you what what's what kind of vibe of the whole thing. For sure,
2: it was it was mansplaining why diversity is bad to <laughs> everyone, right. and that wasn't a good look, I don't think.
1: No. Well, it's always funny to me when you have someone like you're in the majority. You know, this is a white male who is already in the majority. It's not like Google has a majority female or a majority. Uh, you know, non-white employee base. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean. So he's basically just complaining, and you 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 run the place like, mm-hmm. like white males are already in control of everything, and so it wasn't whistleblowing of like you know, hey, we've become a exploited class or whatever. It's it was basically just someone point out you know ah to have the luxury of making a six figure salary at Google and still having time to write ten page memos about how <laughs> terrible life is for for white men. You know aye, aye, aye. so. Anyway, I'm sure uh, we will continue. And it really did highlight, you know, to a lot of people, this guy was a hero for raising this and, and, you know, felt it was brave. I'm sure he's become a martyr to oh, the sure. idea of, of men's rights, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm sure his mom is proud. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll continue to see this. It's really interesting to see how it spills out across the rest of the tech industry in the coming weeks and how Google, you know, carries the conversation forward from here in a productive way. One other uh, bit of news. Uh, this is somewhat specific to New York, but uh, I feel like it's going to be playing out and probably is playing out all over the world. This is hotels versus Airbnb. Uh, nothing new about that conflict. They have definitely been at each other. I think hotels are getting increasingly desperate, as they've seen, uh, you know, especially among millennial audiences, the preference toward Airbnb and toward alternative accommodations uh, from the traditional big hotel Right now, the Hotel Association of New York City and the union that represents hotel workers is running an ad uh, basically trying to kind of scare people about Airbnb, and and it's targeting people who have Airbnb uh, rental places in their building. So it's like, you know, who is in your building? Who is Airbnb letting into your building? And their specific argument is that New York uh, does not get uh, apartment or address listings from Airbnb the way certain cities have required it to. And so that's kind of a specific point. But they're making it in this uh, very, like, terrifying, literally uh, terror-focused message that in Manchester, UK, a terrorist suspect used a short-term rental apartment to plan his, his attack. That is true in the broadest stroke, but he did not use Airbnb. And so, of course, you know, the whole, it, when, when you've got a whole ad taking on Airbnb and the one case they are really citing is not an Airbnb, uh, is kind of bizarre. And uh, so, of course, Airbnb uh, fired back uh, pretty quickly. They ran an ad called Scare Tactics. And uh, we can go ahead and listen to that here. It's a pretty short ad, but it is a, a father of two in Bed-Stuy in New York who's basically talking about, you know the benefits of of using airbnb as a you know apartment owner so let's listen to a bit of that to get a sense of how they responded to these uh, attack ads
0: i work from home and mostly i'm a stay-at-home dad so uh, i wouldn't have been able to do that if i didn't have the support of airbnb as a supplement to my income it's very important to us to actually have that income the hotel industry is pushing scare tactics to frighten the host to think that there's something wrong with what they're doing for someone to jeopardize that because they're trying to make a little bit more profit um is is disturbing.
1: So, you know what what's fascinating to me, I use Airbnb a lot, I really like it, uh but I have to admit there is something kind of vaguely sketchy about the experience. Like I think only once in my uh, of all my lodgings with Airbnb have I shown up and the person who, you know, checks me in is actually the same person that they portray themselves as on the site you know what i mean like the the picture matched the person and the name matched the person every single other one has been like fake to the point where i'll show up and be like are you paul and he'll say what oh yeah i'm paul And if my neighbors ask, you're a friend of mine. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like like that has been I don't know, have you guys had that same experience or or does it
4: Who are you renting from in (laughs) Airbnb? Well that's
1: the thing is this is in like six different cities, you know, that I've stayed in. And again, only with one exception. Washington DC was the only place I think I've stayed where it was one hundred percent the person who showed up was also the person that was in the photo and used the same name. And every other time it's been like, Yeah, don't tell my neighbors that this is an Airbnb, Um, or they kind of quietly hint that. Have you guys not had that experience? Has it always been just kind of straight up the person you see is the person you get?
2: I've never used Airbnb as a millennial confession. (laughs) I I hope this is a safe space to admit that. Um, (laughs) But there was a a rumor once in a – I lived in a walk-up up up until a few months ago, and there was only like three apartments in the whole place – And one of my roommates was convinced that the apartment beneath us was being used for Airbnb purposes and was like getting ready to like tell the landlord as if it was some security concern. But to me... There are a thousand other things for me to worry about walking around New York City than people who use Airbnb. There's like tons of other security concerns. So I appreciate that this ad is coming from like New York hotels and, you know, they're worried about their business and I get it. But there are plenty of scarier, grosser, more terrible things happening in New York than you know, sharing someone's house for a night or two. Well,
0: I think what's interesting is that Airbnb knew that this was a liability from the very beginning. You know, the very first ad campaigns that Airbnb ran were kind of about trying to make people comfortable with the idea of staying in someone else's house. Mm-hmm. And so the, mm-hmm. the the big success that Airbnb has had marketing-wise over the years is to make people comfortable with that idea. And so, you know, what the Hotel Association in New York is doing now is to try to revive that fear and I mean, these ads are pretty ugly and it's, you know, to me, it's uh, an example of when the traditional economy really is faced with the sharing economy. Uh, they're, they're faced with losing consumer control. They freak out and they just try to scare those consumers back to their old habits. You know, that's a pretty depressing strategy and probably self-defeating in, in a way. And I think Airbnb is immune to this kind of thing now because they have built up so, so much goodwill. Um, you know, you don't hear... Any news stories really anymore about about problems with Airbnb rentals? You know, it just doesn't happen anymore, or we don't. You know, Airbnb's built up such a good, uh, solid, positive brand um, that they can deflect a lot of this stuff like fairly easily. So I can't imagine this ad's going to do much to dif- make much difference at all.
4: I don't know. I wasn't um, I wasn't totally blown away by Airbnb's response, to be honest, because I felt like it was a little bit different in terms of a tone than they've really done with a lot of their ads, and it also didn't really have a lot of like of Context into it. If I wasn't already familiar with what um, this New York Association is doing, I I would my, I'm just I would be kind of confused by the purpose of hearing about this guy who relies on Airbnb for income. I, I just didn't really I understood. I think it was smart that they weren't as defensive and attacking as the organization was. But I'm not sure I totally agree with their their approach in responding to it.
1: Well, yeah, Lauren brings up a really good point, which is that they didn't exactly answer the criticism, right? Like if the the attack ad says they might be renting the apartment in your building to a terrorist, and their response is, yeah, but they really need the money.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They were such a nice family before they let that terrorist in there. But
0: what's the point in saying, um, you know, the other the other option for them is to say we don't have terrorists in our building, and then you're just repeating the claim, right? <laughs> yeah. So well, yeah, but I mean so. they could have made it about the nice
1: people who stay at Airbnbs, and uh, you know, instead because that's the that's the the challenge here, right? Is not that the people renting it out are somehow devious? It's uh, you know, if it had been about they they plant you know hidden cameras in there, <laughs> you know, or whatever, it's like you, I, I I just I agree that I don't think they quite answered it. What's funny is uh, one of my best friends. Uh, the, uh, the row house next to hers in D.C. got uh, rented out to Airbnb, and I asked her how that's going. And she's like, oh, I absolutely love it, because she said the people who own it remodel it about once a year to keep it fashionable, and then they give her all the furniture. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's like, I haven't had to buy a piece of furniture in like three years. That's <laughs> so, a good so,
2: deal. So there
1: you go. There's there's <laughs> the ad, the next ad they can run. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk, too, about Dunkin' Donuts. This was uh, news that I honestly got surprisingly huge um you know, chatter, uh, I guess, because it's a big chain. But Dunkin' Donuts is testing a name change uh, to just Dunkin' uh, dropping the donuts. I personally was not super surprised because I think those of us who have been paying attention to this space know that Dunkin' uh, makes a lot more off their coffee. And, you know, that is their big profit center. That's their big push. That's what they've been advertising for years. You know, when they launched a campaign years ago uh, that was uh, America Runs on Dunkin', it yeah, was about their coffee. It was not like a bunch of people chugging uh, donuts, you know. Um, and so I, I wasn't too shocked, uh, but it definitely seemed to just—it it was like the one of the top trending topics on Twitter and Facebook all day. Uh, it, Tim, do you think that a it's really going to make a difference one way or the other? Or do you think it's a smart move?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's going to make much difference. I just think it would—it would introduce enormous costs to change all the signage. I don't know why they would do it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it's—it's uh, it's a name that's been around for what seventy-five years or something. However long that it's been, this place has been going. Um, I mean, who cares if they don't just sell donuts anymore? I, I feel like uh, I don't really understand why they're even considering this idea. Maybe maybe it's just a PR stunt to just get people talking about Duncan.
4: All I could yeah. think of is just like, where where is Casey Affleck? We need him. <laughs> what would he do in this situation?
2: Totally. Or one Boston representative.
4: <laughs>
2: Please. What I'm confused about, though, is what are we to be Duncan if the name is just Duncan, you're just drinking. You're not dunking <laughs> I mean, but, anything. It's but dumb you're as implying
1: p- that the donut is more important than the coffee. You can't dunk the donut without the coffee, and so by eliminating it, you basically give them equal footing.
2: Yeah, but if you're just drinking coffee, you're dunking nothing. So I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, the are you dunking whole your donuts in
0: like soda? Otherwise, yeah, is
2: sure. That what you're saying,
0: David. Oh no, God no. <laughs> I, uh... Yeah, no, I, I. I... I thought it was
1: fascinating. I mean, I like this this idea of of making names more minimalist. So Diana McDougall, uh, one of our colleagues and art director, uh, she and I decided to partner up and figure out which chains should do this next. Uh, We had a lot of fun with this. You can definitely Google. uh, I don't know. Dunkin' Chains and Adweek and you'll find our our piece on it. Diana whipped up some nice revised logos. Uh, My personal favorite was Cracker Barrel just becoming Barrel. (laughs) (laughs) Just just Barrel (laughs) is my absolute favorite. Um, And then uh, Carl's Jr. becoming Carl.
2: Oh, also, I like that. Uh, That's sophisticated. Like,
1: <laughs> it's just got such a simplicity, like just get a burger from Carl. And uh, and then we decided we'd also have to shorten Hardy's, so we made it hard. Mm-hmm. And then we combined them into Hard Carl. And that was, uh, <laughs> you know, because the chain needs to merge at some point. And sure. if you didn't, you're not going to buy something from Hard Carl, who are you going to buy it from? <laughs> so, uh, all, right, all right. And then, Sammy, I have to ask you because I was oh, yeah. baffled by this uh, last night. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. What? What happened on The Bachelorette that made, like, every single one of my social networks explode into fire?
2: Okay, so, spoiler alert, skip ahead, like, two minutes if you don't want to hear spoilers for the finale of Bachelorette. Um, So, in a nutshell, how finales usually go for The Bachelorette franchise... Um, the the last episodes, it's kind of like a, a two-parter. So every episode is normally two hours. So we would see usually that finale of it in which we see kind of her final dates, um, the final two men that are left, they spend time with a ring designer. And then we see kind of the proposal. And because it's the bachelorette, we usually see her stop one of the men mid-proposal to tell him, no, thank you. I do not want to marry you. Stop proposing marriage to me. Instead of just, you know, anyways, it's very antiquated, but we love it. And then usually we have something called after the final rose which is an extra hour added on to the two hours that we already watched. And that's where the host of the show and the Bachelorette and usually the final two contestants kind of all talk about the season and their feelings and what we can expect from them in the future. And often we also hear who the next Bachelor will be, because um, usually the next Bachelor comes from the final four or five, uh, the ones that America actually got to know and love and would want to support in a future season. Um, so last night the Bachelorette franchise flipped the script in a garbage fire of a three hour special to where at the beginning of the episode, the host brought out the Bachelorette Rachel, um, and made her watch the episode with him live and give commentary before some commercial breaks about like (laughs) what she was just crying about that they filmed months ago. Um, and then, like, toward the end, they they brought out the, the guy who won and ended up proposing. What happened to incite America so hard on social media was not only that format change, but I believe they changed that format in order to suit the needs of the final episode because it did not go the traditional way in that she broke up with one of the final two before – He had a chance to even propose because a lot of their fights in the previous episodes had been that he thinks of proposals leading directly to marriage, uh, like do not pass go. (laughs) You're immediately going to get married and he only wants to do that one time since he only wants to get married one time. Uh, And her opinion, Rachel is an attorney and her opinion was that engagements don't mean you have to get married. They mean that you try out more of the relationship and how it would work together for a while. And so America the past few weeks has been very upset with her definition of engagements and proposals. And we're pretty sure she was either under contract to get proposed to or get lost. Or she didn't want to be embarrassed at the end of this just having a boyfriend and not a fiance. So everyone was crying about a breakup that we witnessed happen in like real time. Like no music was played under the scene. It was the most real scene that show has shown in in quite a while especially from such a problematic season um, and then, basically, someone won by default, and it was a contestant that nobody liked, who was on a UPN dating show twenty years ago called Players. And so oh, nobody man. I wanted remember him. Players. Exactly, this guy was <laughs> one of them, Brian from Miami with an earring, was the winner of The Bachelorette. He's a terrible man, and we never saw him actually connect <laughs> with her. All we ever saw from him were like cheesy lines about. Um, I don't know. Just he was always complimenting her, and they never talked about their actual <laughs> lives at all. Uh, so basically, someone won by default, and the guy who they broke up with, basically that we we saw this happen, um, was everyone's favorite. Uh, And so we were all very upset. We were all very confused and shocked. And then we had to kind of sit with the reality of a very terrible decision made by a very favorable bachelorette up until last night. So it just kind of rocked everybody by storm. (laughs) No one was okay. I myself woke up with a bachelorette hangover this morning. I didn't know how to deal. So that was just kind of a what caused the controversy on Twitter Monday night. Uh, It was terrible. Man, if
1: you you like, you know, bring in some dragons and just start like marching armies, that's a full on Game of Thrones episode. You've got like, you know, the people who come out on top are never the ones you want and, you know, Mm -hmm. everything just ends up in rubble. That's, yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad you walked us through that because, man, as someone who was not following at all, i was just like, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Everyone's furious.
4: <laughs> I just treat. I've really over really over the past year, over like I don't know, the whole Bachelorette fascinates me because how many seasons has this been going on now? Like this is like the 13th season of yeah, the show. Yeah, just the Bachelorette and the Bachelor. The has social had, like, like steam behind this thing has only really gr- only grown so sure. much over the past couple years, and I've kind of started to treat it like I do like. Baseball, which is to say, Mm -hmm. I'll
2: see you next year, but please stay out (laughs) (laughs) until then. (laughs) This is how I used to watch Scandal was just via Twitter, and I could kind of guess what the plot lines were, but I never watched it myself.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Sammy. That was a great recap. And it is time to move on to my favorite part of the show where Tim recaps the ads that are actually worth taking the time to go back and sit through. We call it ads worth watching. Tim, uh, it's kind of a, uh, I think we continue to be in the doldrums of the summer, not so much great creative coming out, but you've got some really cool stuff uh, to talk about this week. What, what do you have?
0: Yeah, so it is a little slow, so I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about er- Errol Morris, who I interviewed Errol last week, um, and the, the long Q&A is on adweek.com if you want to check it out. Errol actually just signed with a new production company. Uh, Biscuit Filmworks, and so he's going to be making more ads uh, in the future. And so, uh, Errol and I had a chance to talk at pretty good length last week about some of the great ads he's done. Um, he, of course, well, is, let's uh, yeah, I was about to say, let's take a step back and talk about what what Errol Morris is probably most famous for. Sure, yeah, he's a documentarian. famously, he's made uh, eleven eleven films, classic documentaries like Gates of Heaven. Uh, Thin Blue Line. He won an Oscar for Best Documentary for fo- uh, Fog of War. So he's primarily an artist, filmmaker, documentarian. Uh, but throughout the years, he has also very much enjoyed making commercials. Uh, has no problem making commercials at all. He loves doing it. Uh, he finds them to be, as he as he said to me, uh, like little films in many ways. They're they're very challenging. He said he's never found them easy. And, um, he's such an interesting person and he's such an interesting director, you know, he's 69 years old now, but, but still working as hard as ever. Um, you know, he's mostly become known over the years, uh, more recently for his interview, uh, interviews, you know, most famously he did the Apple switchers commercials from the early two thousands. That was the series, uh, that kind of predated the, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC campaign, But interviews wasn't really actually how he started out. You know, when he made Thin Blue Line, which was the 1988 documentary uh, about a man uh, wrongly sentenced to death for murder, uh, he was more known for visual storytelling. You know, that, that documentary was quite unusual for a documentary in a way because he recreated certain scenes in a very cinematic way. And so he kind of was this crossover guy. It was like it was it was nonfiction, but at the same time, it was in some ways shot like a like a fictional movie. And so he ended up getting hired for many years by ad agencies for for his visual storytelling abilities, uh, and including um, very famously the, the the high life man campaign, which Widen and Kennedy created. Uh, it ran from nineteen ninety nine to to about two thousand four, and. You know, I've, I've spoken to so many people over the years that say that this is their favorite ad campaign ever. Um, you know, it's, it's got the great voiceover by Doug Jeffers uh, kind of talking, you know, embodying this high life man, this sort of rugged traditionalist uh, who sort of shares these offbeat, um, you know, very strong male viewpoints on the world and uh, very no-nonsense commercials. And they're, they're very, very dry ads, and they became sort of cult favorites, um, so, I, I spoke to Errol a little bit about that. Um, maybe we could listen here to um, the commercial Deviled Eggs, which is one of the really early ads that Errol Morris directed uh, for High Life um, as part of this campaign. Mm.
2: That last egg's looking real good. You had quite a few, though. Maybe you shouldn't. But if you make a light choice here, maybe you will have room for just one more. See there, when you live the high life, you can live it
0: both ways. So, I mean, that that kind of style, the really dry humor, uh, ran ran all through the Miller High Life campaign. And uh, Errol said that he had you know great time working with um, the guys that he referred to as the Three Jeffs. There was Jeff Kling, uh, Jeff Salas, and Jeff Williams were the three creatives uh, that worked on this campaign at Wyden. And along with Doug Jeffers, there was actually four Jeffs. So... Um, so he was known for a kind of visual storytelling, but then a, a turning point came in, in Errol Morris's career, uh, on the Oscars in 2002, where he filmed, I think it was about a five minute segment, actually. It was a pretty long segment where he interviewed tons and tons of celebrities, uh, about their famous, about their most favorite films. And he did it with, on a white psych. So completely white background and, uh, with, uh, you know, his interview subjects talking directly to the camera and... Errol actually invented this interesting camera called the Interotron, Uh and it used – somehow it uses a two-way mirror to uh, – so the interview subject is looking at the camera, but they're also looking directly at Errol at the same time because it uses this mirror system where Errol's face appears where the camera uh, basically is. So that's how he gets yeah, –
1: it's like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's like out of like uh, 12 Monkeys or whatever. If you, if you see it, it's like a
0: camera with a man's face on the lens. Yeah, it's totally crazy. I mean, it's just a, a real simple but like ingenious way of getting people to actually engage with the camera as though the camera were a person. So this five-minute Oscar film, apparently Steve Jobs was in the, uh, in the theater at the Oscars that year and saw uh, that film and said, I want that guy for my next campaign. And so that led to the very famous, uh, switchers campaign, which Shyatt day created for Apple, probably 2003 to, to four or so somewhere in there. Um, and we could probably listen. I think the most famous switchers ad is the one with Ellen Feiss, who was the high school student who appeared to be stoned, uh, in her commercial. She later, she later said she was just on Benadryl, which I guess she was stoned if she was on Benadryl, but her eyes were all red and she was, she was sort of slurring a little bit. And, uh, it was a pretty funny, uh, pretty funny ad. Maybe we could listen briefly to Ellen from from the, the famous Switchers ad.
2: I was writing paper on the PC, and it was like
3: beep 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 beep,
2: and then like half of my paper was
4: gone, and I was like, "Hmm." It devoured my paper. It was really good paper, and then I had to write it again, and I had to do it fast, so it wasn't as good. It's kind of. Bummer.
0: So, Switchers did really well. Um, you know, the, the, the most, the, probably the single most uh, celebrated ad that Errol Morris ever made was actually for PBS, and it was in 2001. And you guys might remember this campaign. It was the theme was "Stay Curious," and it was done by Fallon in Minneapolis uh, back in the David Lubars days at Fallon. And uh, there were a bunch of ads in the "Stay Curious" campaign, and they were all about kind of. Adults sort of finding their their you know their inner child in a way, like in, uh, being delighted by the world and and the the you know in, the curious things that you find in the world. And the spot that, uh, that that is the most famous one was the photo. It was called photo booth, and it actually won the Emmy for best commercial that year. And it shows a guy taking a series of 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 you know photographs inside a photo booth. You know, I guess we would just call them selfies today. Uh, where he's got all these, he's making all these funny facial expressions, kind of one after the other, and you don't really know what he's doing, and then later in the ad you realize that um, he's actually making a flip book of himself, and when he flips the book, uh, he's he, he's singing an opera song, he puts a, a record on the record player that's an opera song with a a, a tenor singing, and uh, as he flips through the book, all of his photos make him look, make him appear as though he were singing the uh, the song. And it was just one of those ads. It was so. It was such a genius production the way they did it. I mean, they had to basically do, you know, what the uh, what the ad proposes, which is creating this flipbook um, from from still photographs. It's such an Errol Morris thing. The guy's obsessed with photography, and this was um, just a fantastic campaign. And The most recent campaign that 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 uh, our listeners probably know is the. He also directed the uh, Ronald McDonald ads for for Taco Bell. Uh, a year or two ago where Taco Bell was int- introducing a new breakfast and they searched, uh, they went around the country and they brought in, I think, 20 or 30 guys actually named Ronald McDonald to try the the Taco Bell breakfast and, and say, you know, I'm Ronald McDonald and I love Taco Bell. Kind of a, a silly joke, but um, again, had Errol kind of interviewing these people. And, you know, one thing that we talked about, that which I found interesting uh, during our interview last week was... You know, it's kind of easy to think of interviews with with so-called real people um, as being some per, something kind of separate from acting. Um, but Errol's point of view is that you know that's not really not true. That if you're in any kind of interview situation, you know whether it's an actor or like a quote-unquote real person, you know that person is performing. They they know they're performing. They know there's a camera on, and so the interviewer's job really is to direct that performance. Um, you know, per, perhaps particularly if they're a real person, since they don't have any acting skills. And I think. Uh, Errol sees his job, particularly when, when he works with real people, um, as eliciting wonderful performances out of people who who are performing but but maybe don't know how to perform. Um, so I have a little clip of, of our phone call here that I could play where he talks a little bit about that and kind of how it relates to the concept of, of authenticity or what we now refer to as authenticity in commercials. Particularly if you have people doing anything extemporaneously, and acting is... Uh, a form of of extemporaneous communication here. You want something to emerge. I sometimes distinguish between taxidermy and something that's alive. You don't want something that is just dead on arrival. Um, you want something that is breathing, that that has some spirit. Today they talk about authenticity. I think by authenticity, what people mean most often is. A feeling that you're being shown something that has a life of its own. that isn't just endlessly manufactured. So yeah, I mean, he's such a legend in in film and, and in commercials as well. You know, everyone says he's he's so great to work with. He's really collaborative, and he's just got a a skill set that's amazing. He's made you know over a thousand commercials in his career, um, and there's dozens and dozens of them um, posted to errolmorris.com, so you guys can go check them out and you know it'll be great to see it's great that he's still working and he wants to make ads and the fact that he's just signed with a new production company and Biscuit is top-notch production company Uh, it'll be great to see you know what else he makes uh, in the advertising world going forward
1: yeah definitely uh, recommend everyone check out tim's interview with errol morris the headlines errol morris reflects on apple miller High Life, and other great commercials he's made so definitely check out adweek.com to look that up Uh, i have to tell really quickly my favorite errol morris story and he is one of my favorite directors of all time i think fast cheap and out of control if you have not seen it is one of the best documentaries ever made uh, but he also made one called Mr. Death, and it almost cost me my relationship, which ended up becoming my marriage. Uh, and so, I uh, when my wife and I were first dating, I I was like, "Oh, there's this great director named Errol Morris, and he has this new movie called Mr. Death. We should rent it." And it's about a guy. <laughs> Date night. If you have not, <laughs> yeah. Well, and like we started dating by watching really bad movies, but it's a good movie about a kind of a bad person but it's this guy who kind of invents um he like somewhat accidentally ends up inventing an electric chair and a gallows i think and a lethal injection system like he just once he invents a way to kill somebody people keep hiring like prisons keep hiring him to create other things like you made an electric chair can you make a lethal injection machine and he's like sure why not and it's a it's a real guy he ends up getting hired by this uh, holocaust denier uh, who's basically being sued for libel in Britain, which is a criminal offense over there, and and you know it's based on the fact that he wrote a whole book about denying the Holocaust, and this guy is brought in as the expert witness to secretly analyze the the uh, Nazi gas chambers and try to prove that they there was no gas there, and so like we're watching this, and of course it's just dark and heavy, and it's Errol Morris, so it's just the whole thing is really kind of. Has this dark sense of humor, but really grim. And my future wife is just sitting there, occasionally turning and looking at me. <laughs> it's
4: a modern day with... rom com.
1: She's <laughs> just like looking at me, like, "What? How to you lose know, a like, guy in two hours?
0: Who are you, and why are am I watching this
1: <laughs> Holocaust denier documentary?"
0: <laughs> the darkness is funny. You know, he did a campaign for ESPN number of years ago now, I want to say it was probably 2010 or so, where it was, a, it was a, a short documentary, actually, it was like an eight minute uh, film, where he looked at he, he, he went around the country, and he found people who uh, insisted on being buried in their sports memorabilia. So it was guys that like, you know, like, had their, um, like, Pittsburgh, uh, pirates shirt on and or they had like a Chicago Cubs co- like themed coffin or something and it was really really strange it was kind of the you know the brand loyalty after death kind of theme which is very odd but it's definitely he's, he's definitely got a dark side but he also makes really you know light hearted stuff too um, not so much in his In his feature films, but I think he'll take any ad job that's kind of, you know, got an interesting hook or a challenge to it. Well,
1: thank you so much for recapping that, and uh, we've got a lot more to talk about, so we're going to move on, but uh, look forward to next week. We'll be back with the more traditional ads worth watching, but for now, definitely check out Tim's interview with Errol Morris. It's time to move on to our big discussion of the week, and for this, we are going to magically turn Sammy into Marty Swant, our uh, tech reporter who works alongside Lauren and worked on this package. So, Sammy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Goodbye, I'm going to disappear into the mist now.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Sammy. And on to our big discussion of the week. All right, we have magically transformed Sammy into Marty Swan, tech reporter. Marty, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks. It's uh, This is the the second issue in, in our next tech series where we look at the future of technology and marketing. Uh, Lauren and Marty have both been hard at work on this package uh, for several weeks now, so I wanted to have them talk about a few of the stories that came out. Our cover story uh, was written by our tech editor, Chris Heine, about uh, kind of the future of AI and voice and you know this kind of, rena- well, I would say renaissance, but I don't think there ever was a first one to be reborn, but this explosion of voice activation and voice interface and uh, I'm just kind of curious, Marty, what do you think is the the aspect of, you know, this voice integration that has some of the most potential for
3: marketers? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, it's, it's interesting to see how many people are already starting to try it out, even even though it hasn't really fully picked up with users. I think I think one of the things that's really interesting is just the conversational aspects of it, um, just like how you feel more... You feel more personal when you're talking to, even if it's a device, whether it's Siri or Amazon or or whatever else or Alexa, uh, something feels more personal than if you're typing to something. I I guess it's just even if it's a machine, talking to it makes it feel more uh, relatable. And so I'm curious – how that might help to build brand affinity if so, if somebody creates a good experience, or how it might hurt if it's if it's a dud.
1: Lauren, do you think that w- that one of the big trends we're going to see is moving away from these? Like right now, we all have well, not everybody, but I mean, a lot of people have these voice activated home devices, whether it's a Google Home or an Alexa or yeah, Echo. Um, you know, it feels like the next phase is this voice interaction becoming part of on. All your appliances, you know, not just this one hub thing. Do do you feel like kind of that we're on the verge of of heading in that direction?
4: Yeah, I mean that's kind of what people have talked about as being in the works for you know five five ten years ish, maybe even more than that. But I I do think all of these devices make it you know more realistic that say you can tell any device to turn on your TV. You can use it to control your refrigerator. You can use it to c- control the blinds. You can use it as this kind of central spot to everything. I think what's different and inter- different, different and interesting about it now, just with the voice component, is you almost have to kind of like predict human behavior in a way. Uh, if you think about stuff like Google, you can type in, if you're looking for something, you type in a query and you more or less can kind of figure out what you're looking for from there. It doesn't have to be verbatim exactly what you type in to the result. You're going to find the information you need, and that's not how voice works. Voices, people are giving commands to things. So you have to think about what, you know, it just kind of goes back to, like, understanding what people are going the, just kind of understanding human behavior a little bit more than you really do in digital.
1: Yeah, the the big thing I've noticed with voice is that I – it doesn't replace typing, you know, necessarily. It supplements it. It basically highlights now that we have this ability to sometimes give voice commands. And it's like sometimes what I need from a device, from my Google Home or whatever, is something it can just tell me, like tell me how many cups are in a gallon or something like that. But then other times you need it to show you something. And, you know, there's the Amazon Echo Show, which is this kind of smart screen device that is nice. To me, it's like a stopgap. The thing that's missing is I want to be able to tell you know show me this but put it up on my TV or put it up here you know what i mean is is that kind of feeling that all of these devices around me are actually working together and i feel like we're not far off i feel like we're probably you know within a year of having that be something that's not just displayed at CES but is actually something that can happen in your in your own kitchen or living room
3: yes yeah, it's, it's interesting i was uh, i just finally watched the movie her a couple of days ago and um it's interesting to see how it, and that 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 movie came out even before you know uh, before the AirPods were a thing from Apple and before really even before Alexa took off. But it's interesting to see how they had kind of that combination of of the voice like the earpiece, but also it, something would pop up on their phone. So I was just thinking the exact same thing with, with show, but like it, how does it work with your with your phone as well? So I think you're right; like those two things complement each other rather than necessarily fully replacing it. And it seems like the younger generations too. A, a lot of kids are talking more to their devices than maybe kids and older people, it seems like. And that's what people I've talked to at other companies have said as well.
1: One of my all-time favorite movie moments is in an otherwise kind of bad movie, but Star Trek IV, I think, the one where they go to Earth like in the present day, which, of course, was the 1980s. And uh, they get there, and, like, Scotty goes to use a computer, and he just sits down, and he says, he says, computer, show me this, and the computer just, of course, sits there, and someone's like, you have to use the mouse, or, you know, they point to the mouse, and he picks it up and talks into it, and he's like, computer, (laughs) (laughs) and then they're like, no, no, it's a mouse, and he goes, oh, how quaint, (laughs) but it's, like, it's already kind of gotten to that point where it's, like, if I can't just, like, yell at something to do something, it's like, oh, really, I have to, like, go and fiddle with it and I mean it's not we're not there but we're getting there
3: well it's funny you mentioned that because like uh it reminds me actually at CES I remember walking into my hotel room I'd just gotten a Google Home for Christmas and I had an Alexa and I didn't even have any connected devices but for some reason I walked into my just normal hotel room I thought I could just say hey Alexa turn on the lights I mean there was no Alexa even in the room but something subconsciously in me thought, just expected them to have it. And I'm not quite sure why, but something in the back of my mind, the more I started interacting with these devices, I just thought, well, this is going to have it. And of course it did not.
1: Yeah. I mean, Lauren, do you feel like we're that what we've been in this last year or two, you know, I guess really just a year has been about this phase of just kind of getting consumers used to the idea of talking to devices, like just getting us in that habit?
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, anecdotally to, Yeah, I've got, um, which we've talked about a little bit before, um, I have an Echo at home. And it it was kind of, I got it last year, and there was a little bit of a learning curve in terms of just realizing that this thing was always going to be on in my uh, living room and, you know, It would periodically kind of, like, light up or it might say something sporadically. But then after a while, honestly, you just get over it. You get used to it. And now I'm to the point where I, you know, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, as soon as I start to, like, brush my teeth and get going and stuff, is just ask um, Alexa to turn on Pandora, to turn on Spotify. I I don't even think twice about it anymore. So I think there is um, that learning curve and getting consumers just to understand. To not only own it, but also understand it and just get them comfortable with it that, you know, is going to be important going forward.
1: Well, obviously, uh, we haven't just been writing and talking about voice, uh, you know, lots of other tech. One of the hot ones is blockchain, blockchain technology. Marty, uh, you wrote about this one uh, in our issue. Give me the the 30 second layman's description uh, that you would tell, you know, your, your grandparents or whatever. It's like, what is blockchain technology?
3: Yeah, sure. So in a nutshell, so blockchain technology, it's essentially like a digital ledger. So think of it like this massive, you know, immutable uh, universal spreadsheet, I guess you could say, for all these different transactions. Um, it could be for financial services, but it, I mean, there are a lot of other use cases too for advertising and for healthcare and stuff like that. Um, but that's essentially it. It's just like this, uh, it's, it's more secure, it's more transparent, and uh, people are seeing it as a way of... Uh, logistically making a lot of these transaction worlds a little easier to to navigate.
1: And and is it the benefit for marketers is it just one of security or data security? I mean what or are there benefits beyond that?
3: uh yeah I think two or three that stick out that people are beginning to experiment with are um, one is actually uh looking at accountability uh, I guess there's uh, transparency is a good thing um, especially when you're looking at marketers that are maybe buying ads from different publishers uh, there are ways of making sure that an advertiser is actually going to get the impressions uh, that they that they paid for uh, and there's also ways there's one company that's actually creating essentially like a like a a curated whitelist of publishers that are using the blockchain to essentially keep the quality of the overall like network of advertisers and publishers in there high. Um, but security is definitely a big thing too. Just I mean, which kind of goes hands hand in hand with um with data. Uh, if you can use the blockchain to better protect customers' data, uh, you're going to be able to. Yeah, benefit from that as well, and so actually, Nasdaq has a—I don't know if you call it like a spin-off company or what—but it's a company called Niax. It's a—they're—they're uh, they're launching their own uh, advertising exchange uh, later on this year, but they're already testing it, and um, they're going to be using blockchain technology for that, trying to bring it over some of the uh, the uses from the financial world into the advertising world.
1: Now, it, Marty and Lauren, you both uh, co bylined a great piece called Eight Technologies and Platforms That Every Forward-Thinking Marketer Needs to Know." Uh, which I definitely recommend everyone check out because we don't have time to go through all eight of these. Uh, but I am curious which ones jumped out at you. I think for me, um, it was uh, fascinating seeing uh, Google Glass uh, back in the mix. Uh, it's the the return of Google Glass. Uh, it, it, what, what is the return of? I mean, what how has how has Glass come back, and what what are its what are its potential here?
3: Yeah, it, it is interesting to see like this Glass two point uh, Google Glass Enterprise. Uh, last time they were focused more on a expensive kind of user driven kind of more like a wannabe cyborg type model for people that are interested in that. Um, but this time they're actually focusing more on industries uh, manufacturing, agriculture stuff like that so you can be doing a task and 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 see you know a video or, or whatever AR up along with it um, that's a good question, but they're they're trying to become more. Nation, I guess more focused rather than it being like this emerging device for everybody. They're trying to figure out specific use cases, uh, which is probably smart if you're trying to build adoption from like the niche more broadly rather than creating something for everybody that doesn't necessarily pick up because I mean it was $1500 that's kind of a lot of money for something when people didn't really even know what the use case was for it yet yeah
1: yeah lauren uh, which which uh, what are some of the platforms that jumped out at you as ones that uh, you think more people should be paying attention to
4: mm. well i think my favorite one to write about and think about is probably amazon because you know obviously we just talked about voice ai and what Amazon's doing with Alexa, but they're also really starting to show their cards a little bit more in terms of how they can compete with the Facebook or Google in the advertising world, in terms of the data they have, the ad tech they're building, the martech they're building for publishers and brands. That's all kind of starting to, I know some agencies have have been in talks with uh, Amazon about what Amazon's play in the advertising world is really like because um, I think that's been... It's always been like the the elephant in the room a little bit just because they are so big and they have so much data on consumers and have already... Um, you know, kind of taken over e-commerce and retailers, and I think you're starting to see a little bit of that creep into advertising.
1: Yeah, for sure. The uh, on a similar front of kind of these major digital players that are having more impact, Apple and the, and the arc. What it, do you pronounce it? Arc Kit or AR Kit? AR Kit. Yeah. yeah. So the AR Kit. Tell me about that one. Uh,
4: so yeah, what's interesting about AR Kit is that Apple has kind of also been an elephant in the room in terms of augmented reality. A lot of people have been wondering when they're going to get into the space and really invest in it. And, you know, that's obviously now not only in the works, it's going to be in the in their new operating system to come out. I, I think it's this fall. Um, and we, I've also talked to a lot of brands and agencies who are eager to get their hands on that stuff as well it's because they've been building um, – a lot of branded apps with augmented reality before in the past. They've been experimenting on Facebook and Snapchat and all these different platforms. But when you've got a major manufacturing company like Apple that has access to millions of devices, obviously that is going to be a little bit more interesting for brands in terms of how they, if that comes pre-installed on a phone, that's um, a big benefit to a marketer.
1: No I'm personally a lot more bullish on AR than I am on VR, but you guys did touch on uh, you know Oculus, which of course was acquired by Facebook uh, for a solid two billion dollars. and so they are going to keep trying to make sure that that investment is worthwhile. Uh, but what is your take? I mean, I feel like VR is the the topic that everyone kind of rolls their eyes at and says, oh, that's the fad. that's the QR codes of
3: 2017. but I, I mean what what's your take on it? I feel like VR is kind of stuck in this, uh, for lack of a better word, I just feel like this like purgatory between hype and hope. In a way, um, yeah, there are a, a lot of really interesting use cases that brands and media companies are starting to do. There are a lot of really cool VR d- documentaries that we've talked about. I think even like in previous episodes of this podcast, but um, but at the same time, it's just not broad yet, and so. The problem that VR seems to face is like this chicken or the egg mentality is our headsets can bec- going to become ubiquitous enough where it's worth investing on the content side or does the content have to be good enough where people can justify spending anywhere between, you know, one hundred and $800 on, on a VR headset. That's not even including a computer you might need on the side. If it's a big, powerful, you know, PC powered one like Oculus, um, but what's interesting is next next year, Facebook's rumored to be releasing its own like two hundred dollar headset, which would kind of be between the Samsung Gear VR and maybe Oculus's current version. And so that's the thing is like, is it really worth worth it? Because these programs aren't necessarily cheap to create if you're creating like like high quality VR content, um, especially if it's only gonna be seen by a few people. It's and if it's bad, it, it's 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 um. It's, probably a, a total waste of money so it's kind of a risk but um I don't know. I just wonder what's going to come first
1: yeah the, the AR I mean the VR problem continues to be that you have to get the headset on someone's head to get them to even try it out and, and that's hard enough uh, you know to even access one to get a hold of it to see one in in your native environment and then to also prove the use case that this has some practical value beyond kind of oh this is a, a weird game where you're climbing through the you know, the Mount Everest or whatever, it's, it, I think you can make that sell with AR pretty easily because it's like, hey, you've already got a phone in your hand, right? Now imagine if it could show you where the closest Denny's was. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's an easy sell uh, with VR between the hardware costs and just kind of the lack of ubiquity. And it just feels like it goes against consumer behavior. You know, it, it's, we're not a culture of cover your head and your ears and sequester yourself away i i think we like just having light technology that you can look at your wrist you can pull out your phone you can talk to your appliance on the other side of the room you're not dedicating 100 percent of your life to you know of your moment uh to the vr headset but, uh, lauren are you the least bit bullish about vr you think it'll make it past this this uh kind of uphill phase
4: i don't know i think i don't see it being used by majority or even a even even less than a majority of consumers and I think um, even stuff like in the in the office and we have these little like cardboard VR headsets that basically every brand is put together for about five cents and sent out to all tech reporters um, are not that great and I you know I I have the Samsung gear at home I can't tell you the last time that I used it mostly because I usually feel like um, whatever the content is it's i can find it on my smartphone i can find it on a desktop i can watch it on tv i can find maybe it won't be that exact same experience but i don't find the vr content to be that immersive that justifies me to pull out the samsung gear and to load it up and then find it and it it just the the it's i don't find it a very immersive type of experience.
3: I mean, that's a good point. Like you know, it's like watching it in a headset versus watching it on a screen might not always be, you might get the gist of it, but at the same time, like I was thinking about the size of a screen, right? Like, let's say like you're going to watch a certain movie on a big screen, like in a movie theater versus, you know, at your home, like maybe like, like a like in your living room versus on a smartphone. But it, it makes me wonder, like, you know, just like marketers have, have struggled with, you know, moving TV spots into the mobile screen how might they like think of VR first content, you know, like what what needs to be done to warrant having like 360 video? Um, and like what is it? multiple dialogues, multiple scenes you can't show? Is it creating more of like a choose your own adventure? makes me wonder, like instead of us thinking about it as a medium, just for the sake of being in the medium, like what kind of stories can be told? They can't be told in any other way. Like, what can people imagine up? And I think that's where the good stuff's going to come. Not just from like creating like a. a I mean, there, there's so many things we get pitched that are so gimmicky. Like, why are you even doing this in VR? But I think the the real stuff will stand out. It's just a matter of like who wants to invest in that first.
1: I think the way that panoramic uh, pho- photography has been and video has been integrated into smartphones through Facebook and through other platforms. To me, that's much more compelling. It's like, oh man, I've got this window, and I turn around, I can see like all the way around me. You know, the first time I uploaded a panoramic photo to Facebook, and you could actually scroll around the photo. Uh, you know, just turning your phone. That's mind blowing. You know, you get used to it quickly, but that's the kind of thing it's like if I can do that just with my phone and my and Facebook, you know, why do I need to spend $500 for something that's that's going to be a more intense version of that same sensation. But I think you're right. I, I think Marty brings up a good point that it's the storytelling it feeds really creative storytelling. I just think that some of the ideas that are maybe born in VR will probably end up living elsewhere. Like, okay, that's a cool idea, but let's strip it down until it could live on just your phone. And you don't have to be strapping a thing to your head. Yeah, you know, that said, games are selling, devices are selling. They're probably selling about a million a year of the uh, Oculus. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's not bad. It's not staggeringly gigantic, but it's... Uh, you know, it, it's certainly going to keep growing and, and uh, we will obviously be keeping an eye on that. Well, we are a, about out of time and so I would strongly encourage everyone to check out adweek.com and look for our next tech series. Uh, the stories we've talked about today, especially the eight technologies and platforms uh, that marketers need to know, that is a fantastic roundup. Uh, so congratulations again to uh, to Marty, to Lauren. Thank you both so much for joining us. Congrats to Chris Heine, our tech editor, who also put in just tons of work on this. Great package and uh, strongly recommend it. And thanks so much to both of you for coming on the show. thanks for having us.
4: Thanks, David.
1: All right. Well, uh, don't forget, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from our listeners. And uh, we've got a few fun things coming up soon. Marketing to Millennial Parents, our uh, package of articles on that topic. We've got a package coming up on audience-based advertising. We've got our Project Isaac Awards, which honor inventive marketing. So lots of cool stuff coming up. And so be sure to keep an eye on adweek.com and keep tuning into the podcast. Our theme music is by home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. And uh, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we will talk to you next week.
2: This week's episode was brought to you by NPR One, which offers listeners an experience that's personalized and seamless wherever people are listening. To learn how your brand can be part of that experience, visit mpr.org/sponsorship and request a demo.